0: From the Heidelberg Catechism, let's read together, Lord's Day 19. Why is it added and sits at the right hand of God? Christ ascended into heaven to manifest himself there as head of his church through whom the Father governs all things. How does the glory of Christ, our head, benefit us? First, by his Holy Spirit, he pours out heavenly gifts upon us as members. Second, by his power, he defends and preserves us against all enemies. What comfort is it to you that Christ will come to judge the living and the dead? In all my sorrow and persecution, I lift up my head and eagerly await as judge from heaven, The very same person who before has submitted himself to the judgment of God for my sake and has removed all the curse from me. He will cast all his and my enemies into everlasting condemnation. but He will take me and all his chosen ones to himself into heavenly joy and glory. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Above this world, a great king rules. He rules from the throne in heaven. That great king is our king, the Lord Jesus Christ. After he ascended into heaven, he sat down on the throne at the Father's right hand. He assumed a position of great glory and honor, of power and might. He is king of kings and lord of lords. Despite the pretensions of many world leaders, Christ rules over all the peoples and nations that dwell on the earth. He holds all of history in his hands. He accomplishes whatever he sets out to do. All things have been put under his feet. He's in charge of this world and of each of our lives. Christ's kingship is something that may be difficult for us as Christians to always see. If Christ is truly king over all, why does he allow many of his followers to be persecuted for their faith? If Christ rules over all, why does he allow us to suffer accidents and illnesses? If Jesus is indeed Lord and King, why doesn't he help me in the midst of my struggles? Why do I have to face one hardship after another? If Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth, where is he when I need him most? Why do I so often lose in my battle against sin and Satan? If Christ is King, why don't we see more evidence of this. Perhaps, beloved, we are looking with the wrong eyes. The world teaches seeing is believing. Many people will not accept anything that cannot be scientifically verified. They need to see it, to experience it, or to be able to prove it in order to accept it. Yet Christ's kingship like many matters of faith, cannot be proven in that way. It's not like we can set up a telescope to look into heaven to see God's throne room. We need to have eyes of faith. Faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. In 2 Corinthians 5, Paul urges us to walk by faith, not by sight. This afternoon, we'll focus our attention on how Christ sits at the right hand of God and how He's coming to judge the living and the dead. Here we see Christ attain the spoils of His victory over sin, Satan, and death. We see Him glorified as King, worthy of all praise and adoration, And yet our Catechism deals with these things in a very practical manner. It focuses on the benefit we receive from Christ becoming King and from His return on the clouds of heaven. The Catechism focuses on how Christ's glorification provides us with much comfort and assurance. I preach to you the good news of the gospel under the following theme. Christ's glorious kingship provides us with great security. We are secure in the present reign of Christ and in the coming return of Christ. In the Apostles' Creed, we confess that Jesus Christ sits at the right hand of God. So, what does that mean, that Jesus sits at God's right hand? To understand this, we need to know something about the significance of a person's right hand. Since most people are right-handed, a person's right hand signifies strength. If your right hand is dominant, you generally have more power in that hand than in your left. This applies not just to people, but also to God. The Lord rescued Israel out of Egypt by bringing devastating plagues on the Egyptians, and finally by drowning Pharaoh and all his host in the Red Sea. In response, the Israelites sang, Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In Psalm 20, David prays for God's help in days of trouble, for his protection against his enemies. He says, Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving might of his right hand. Thus, the right hand symbolizes strength and power. The right hand also symbolizes a position of honor. When Joseph brought his sons to Jacob for a blessing, he lined them up so that the oldest would be blessed with Jacob's right hand. Yet Jacob crosses his hands one over the other, thus providing Joseph's younger son with a greater blessing. Here we see that the right hand symbolizes blessing. 1 Kings 2 tells us about how when Bathsheba came into the presence of King Solomon to make a request of him, the king honored his mother in a special way. First he bowed down to her. Then he sat her down on the right hand of his throne, a position that showed his respect for her. To be placed at someone's right hand was a position of honor and respect. The fact that Jesus Christ sat down on the throne at the Father's right hand shows that he has received a position of great honor and authority. By giving him the throne, the Father glorifies his Son. This is in fulfillment of Christ's prayer in John 17. Our Lord prayed to the Father, Glorify me in your own presence with the glory I had with you before the world existed. Christ was praying that he might be restored to his rightful position as king. By sitting down at God's right hand, this is what happened. The Father restored Christ to the glorious position of being king over all the earth. The Apostle Paul speaks about Christ's glorious position in Philippians 2. He says, Therefore God has highly exalted him and given him and bestowed on him the name that's above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Already today, many Christians bow the knee in homage of their Lord and King. And when Christ returns on the final day, everyone will be forced to acknowledge Him as King. Christ's enthronement also emphasizes His great power. The fact that He sat down on the throne of the Father's right hand symbolizes how He received great authority. When Christ was on trial, He appeared before the high priest, Caiaphas asked asked Jesus if he was the Christ, the Son of God. Matthew 26, 64 records Christ's answer. You have said so, but I tell you from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. With these words, Jesus testified that he was the promised Messiah, that he would exercise authority as king over all the earth. Christ further explained this to his disciples when he commissioned them. He said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That means that Jesus Christ is in control of all that happens, both on earth and in heaven. God made him Lord and King over all. In Ephesians 1, Paul speaks about how God seated Christ at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that's named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. The Bible makes it clear Christ is ruling over all of the world. And Christ does so with specific intent. His purpose is to gather a people for himself, from all tribes and nations. It is to gather, defend, and preserve his church. Paul stresses this in Ephesians 1.22. He says that God put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. Many people view history as the acts of various men and nations over time. We can fall into the trap of thinking that way. Yet in actual fact, Christ governs over all things in such a manner that everything that happens ultimately accomplishes His purposes. Do you believe that, beloved? Sometimes we struggle with the teaching that Christ is in control of all things. This world is filled with so much evil and suffering. In many parts of this world, Christians are being imprisoned. They're having their goods confiscated. They're even being martyred for their faith. There's so much violence in the world. Robberies, stabbings, assaults, abuse, rape, and murder. In 2019, typhoons have killed many in China and Africa. Heat waves have killed many more in Japan and India. The Bahamas were devastated by a hurricane. Australia has seen terrible bushfires. India has experienced catastrophic drought. It raises the difficult question. Where was God in the midst of all these events and all the suffering they brought we read this afternoon from Psalm 2. It speaks about nations conspiring and peoples plotting. The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Throughout the ages, Satan has been using worldly powers to try to oppose God's work. Repeatedly, he tried to wipe out the Jewish people, destroying the line leading to the Messiah. He provoked Herod's attempt to destroy the baby Jesus after his birth in Bethlehem. He used the jealousy of the Jewish leaders to get them to conspire to have Christ crucified. He used the Sanhedrin, the ruling Jewish council, to oppose the work of the apostles, to persecute the early Christian church. Satan's opposition to the kingdom of heaven has not stopped. Consider the forces of Nazism and Communism in the past century, trying to establish a new world order without God. Consider the impact of Islam in the world today, attempting to subjugate the world to the teachings of Allah. Consider the impact of Charles Darwin and his theory of evolution, his denial of God's creation work, and thus of God's claim over every living creature, has wreaked havoc with the faith of many. We are affected by the empty philosophies of this world, by secularism, which denies eternity and emphasizes that life is to be lived to the utmost in the here and now, encouraging us to buy into the world's desire for instant gratification. We're affected by materialism, which stresses that you deserve happiness. You can find it in all the stuff you buy. Also by relativism, which teaches there's no absolute standard by which to live our lives. What may be right for you may not work for me. Leads to a tolerance for many things that the Bible defines as sin. Many of the world's leaders in politics, in business, in education, and in science have become spokespeople for Satan's propaganda. In their own areas of influence, they spread their empty philosophies. Think of the LGBTQ agenda, the pornography industry, the promotion of abortion and euthanasia. They are the world leaders of Psalm 2 that rise up against the Lord and his anointed one. They are the seed of the serpent, who do their utmost to direct the hearts of people away from Christ and his gospel. Through their influence, the hearts of many have been darkened, their thinking made futile. We don't see much of Christ's glory, of his power and authority over the world, do we? At times, we as Christians struggle with the idea that Jesus Christ is king over all, that he's in charge of everything that happens in our lives. Not only do we see many things degenerating in society around us, we also face real struggles in our own lives. If Jesus is truly king over all, why does he allow me or one of my loved ones to suffer serious illness? If Jesus is in control of everything, why did he allow me to be assaulted or abused or to undergo trauma in my life? If Jesus rules over all things, why did he allow my husband or wife or son or daughter to die? Beloved, it can be really hard to reconcile the misery we experience in this life with Jesus being king over all things for the sake of his church. We need to understand that Christ's kingdom is not of this world. He does not rule with physical force, but instead exercises great spiritual power. Christ has established his church on this earth. He continues to gather, defend, and preserve it. By his spirit and word, Christ is taking captive the hearts and the minds of many. Although Christianity is declining in the Western world, the gospel is spreading in Asia and in Africa. Although we don't see it nearby or know much about it, Christ is teaching people the good news of salvation, causing them to repent and to believe in him. And beloved, Christ is also busy ruling over us. As king in heaven above, Jesus gives good gifts to us as people. The greatest gift that Christ has given us is that he has poured out his spirit on his church. Christ has not left us alone. The spirit makes his home in all God's people, in all The struggles and sorrows, the hardship and the grief that we face in life, God is with us. He dwells personally in each of our hearts. He is there to comfort us in our sorrows. He's there to direct us back to the throne of grace when we're discouraged, when we're ready to give up hope. He helps us when we're lost for words and we don't know how to pray. The Spirit is our helper and comforter in the midst of all the battles that we face. Through the Spirit, Christ pours out heavenly gifts on us as members. He works with the gospel in our hearts, directing us to Jesus Christ and the salvation we have in him. He guides and directs us in our daily lives. He teaches us God's will for our lives. He helps us to live in accordance with God's commandments. The Spirit helps us in our struggles against sin and temptation. He transforms us. that more and more we put to death the sinful nature. He works fruit like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control in us. By his power, Christ also defends and preserves us against all enemies. We need to be careful to correctly understand what our catechism is saying here. It is not saying that our enemies can never attack us. We continually come under the assault of our spiritual enemies, the devil, this world, and our own sinful flesh. There's also times when we face the assault of people in society who are hostile to the Christian faith. Yet, despite the assaults of mighty foes, King Jesus will help us. You see, beloved, we can find great security in the kingly rule of Christ. He's in charge of all that happens in this world, and he's made great promises to us. He is the good shepherd of his sheep, who has promised that no one will snatch us out of his hand. He has promised to keep us secure. Nobody and nothing will be able to separate us from God's love in Christ Jesus, our Lord. While we undergo struggles and hardships in this life, Christ will preserve his chosen ones through all the ups and downs of life. He will hold on to us so that we may share in his blessings, both in this life and in the life to come. Brings us to our second point. In it, we'll see how we are secure in the coming return of Christ. Our catechism also speaks of how Christ will come to judge the living and the dead. Jesus taught his followers that in the passage we read from Matthew 25. He spoke of the Son of Man coming in his glory and all the angels with him, and of how he will sit on his glorious throne. Jesus taught that all the nations will be gathered before him. He will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. What this passage makes clear is that this world, as we know it, will not continue indefinitely. A day is coming when the Lord Jesus will come back on the clouds of heaven. Paul writes about the glorious return of Christ in 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 16. He says, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God. According to Matthew 25, 32, Christ will then sit down on his glorious throne. On that day, every person who has ever lived will have to give account of him or herself before the Lord's judgment seat everyone will be judged according to what they have done in this world, whether good or evil. In Matthew 25, Jesus shows how in his judgment of all people, Christ will make a distinction between the sheep and the goats. The sheep are his own dearly loved people, those whom he has redeemed by his blood. The goats are all those who refuse to believe the gospel who did not acknowledge Jesus as Savior and Lord. Earlier we noted how at his ascension into heaven, Christ was seated at the right hand of God. In Matthew 25, Christ says that he will place his sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. The sheep receive the honored place. They are welcomed into Christ's kingdom. But the goats are are condemned to the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. With the secularization of our society, we see more more and more people denying the existence of God. One of the reasons is that they don't want to be accountable to God, either in this life or in the life to come. Many will bluntly say that, that they believe that death is the end of all life. There is no life after death. And yet, beloved, God has put eternity into man's heart. When unbelievers are dying, many do so in great fear. Instinctively, they know they will have to face their maker and judge. The thought of the final judgment is horrible and dreadful for the wicked and evildoers. Hebrews ten twenty seven teaches that outside of a living faith in Christ, there is only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. In 2 Thessalonians 1, Paul explains how God will punish those who do not know God or who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. They will be punished... With everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. This serves as a warning for all true believers. It is a deterrent to sin and worldliness. We need to take seriously Jesus' warning in Matthew 18, verse 8. Jesus said, and if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. We need to purge our lives of the things that lead us on a pathway to destruction. Knowing God's judgment on evildoers is an incentive to holy living. In 2 Corinthians 5, verses 9 and 10, Paul says that we make it our aim to please Him, knowing that all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And how do we do that? By abiding in Christ. In 1 John 2, 28, the apostle writes, And now, little children, abide in Him, so that when He appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from Him in shame. At his coming. So do we need to be afraid of the coming return of Christ? No, beloved, we don't. Not if we have a living faith in Jesus Christ. You might ask, but what about my sins? Won't I be judged for all the wrong that I've done? No, beloved, not if you are in Christ. There are people who doubt whether or not they've done enough to inherit eternal life. People who are always weighing their life to see if their good deeds outweigh their sins. Who think that we inherit salvation based on our faith and our works. Our reading from Matthew 25 might reinforce such thinking. In it, it seems as if Jesus will judge people on the basis of their works. But that's not the case. We know that it is by grace alone that we're saved. And not by works. The sheep are not saved because they fed the hungry, gave a drink to the thirsty, clothed the naked, showed hospitality, or visited the sick and those in prison. They're saved Because of a living faith in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. The works that they do are not the basis for Jesus' judgment to allow them to inherit the kingdom of his Father. They are evidence for the fact that they have a living faith in Christ alone. See, beloved, we should never look for security in our salvation in our works for we're sinful people. Even the holiest in this life have only a small beginning of the obedience that God requires of us. Instead, we should look for our security in Jesus Christ. Our catechism encourages us in this. It says that in all our sorrow and persecution, we can lift up our head and eagerly await as judged from heaven. Our Savior, Jesus Christ, when you lift up your head, you fix your eyes heavenward. It's from there that we await our Savior. We do that with bated breath, with eager anticipation. How is that possible? Shouldn't we be afraid of the return of Christ as judge? Doesn't the Bible teach that all people will have to give account for even the careless words we've spoken? And what about the rest of my sins? What about those sins that I feel really bad about? Sins that have deeply hurt those around me, that have grieved God? How can we eagerly await Christ's return, knowing all the terrible things we've done in this life? because we find our security in the identity of our judge. We know that the judge who judges us knows us and has a relationship with us. Our catechism reminds us of the fact that he submitted himself to the judgment of God for my sake and has removed all the curse from me. Jesus Christ bore the judgment of God for all our sins. He's wiped the slate clean. He's forgiven us all our sins. In Christ, we are righteous. We are holy before God. That's why we don't need to fear judgment day. That's why we eagerly await the return of Christ. On the clouds of heaven. King Jesus' return will be a great time for all his chosen ones. We'll be crowned with glory and honor. Christ will acknowledge us before the Father, he'll make known the innocence of all his people. God is going to wipe away every tear from our eyes. Christ will take us to himself in heavenly joy and glory. He will cause us to possess such glory as the heart of man could never imagine. He's going to allow us to reign with him eternally over all creatures. Looking toward that glorious future helps us to persevere through the midst of the struggles and sorrows of this life. For we know that Christ has power and dominion over all our enemies Not even Satan and all his forces can prevail against us. For, beloved, we have a good shepherd who cares for us. And so we receive much comfort and assurance from Christ's enthronement as king. The church has a future in this world. Through faith we will overcome the difficulties and the obstacles that confront us in this life. Nations and kingdoms of this earth will pass away, but Christ's kingdom will never fail. Beloved, when you look at all that's happening in this world, when you experience the trials and sorrows of life, it can be difficult to see Christ as king over all. Yet with the eyes of faith, we know that Jesus Christ is king, seated at God's right hand. He is the all-victorious king who has won the battle against sin and Satan and death. All glory and power and wisdom and might and honor and blessing are his. Christ will continue to gather, defend and preserve his church from all tribes and nations. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. And he's coming back again to take us to himself so that we can share in his joy and glory forevermore. Amen. In response to the gospel, let's rise and sing from hymn 44, stanzas 1, 4, and 5.